Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, March 13th, and this is the weekly market update. Just a quick reminder, nothing that you hear on this video or podcast is, a, is investment advice. Do your own due diligence, please, on anything that's discussed here. It's your money, it's your responsibility. Uh, before we get started, I uh, just want to do a shout out to uh, the podcast audience keeps to, keeps growing. Uh, people made suggestions that they wanted to have the videos put into a podcast format so they could listen to it when they were driving to work or it's more convenient than listening on YouTube. So we went ahead and did that. Uh, I just asked that uh, if you have the ability in whatever podcast medium that you're using to listen to the actionable intelligence alert weekly market update that you give us a review or give us some type of shout out uh, helps push us up the rankings and helps us get uh, in front of other people so this week's reality check so we've had this discussion off and on basically i've put similar charts up before and what we're looking at here is basically what performs, what financial instruments perform the best in an inflationary environment? Why are we talking about that? Well, there's a lot of discussion, and I've been discussing it also. A lot of smart people are starting to get more and more on board this inflationary uh, period that we may be entering, whether or not it's just going to be a cyclical inflationary transitory impulse because of the short-term uh, effects of coming out of the COVID and some uh, like the Federal Reserve and a lot of the central banks are saying that's what their story is. A lot of what you're seeing in these price increases is nothing but transitory uh, credit impulses and price increases that will fade over time. Uh, a lot of smart people don't feel like that's the case. I'm tending to move towards that direction. That's more of a secular trend that's going to last for several years. And so what's important to look at is what performs best during these times if you, in fact, have an inflationary environment as far as financial assets. First of all, we can look at what doesn't perform well. And what we see here is, is that the best performing areas are basically oil futures and commodities um, and energy stocks. And we've pointed that out before. Um, a lot of people have the view that during inflation, gold performs the best, but that's not actually true. Um, it will perform. It will have its day. But in a rising inflationary environment, the best performing asset class really is energy stocks. But you see a lot of things that we're talking about uh, in the uh, actionable intelligence alert uh, that have been down for many years, down and out beaten down, emerging markets, commodities, energy stocks. What doesn't do well? Well, your financial instruments, right? Uh, treasury securities, corporate bonds, they, they don't perform well. They actually have a uh, average losses over that time. You know, during it, if that makes sense, right? On a, on a bond, um, that's why they called bonds during the late 70s and early 80s when we had high inflation in the United States we had negative real rates, they called bonds certificates of confiscation. Why? Well, if the inflation rate was 10% and your bond was only yielding 8%, you were losing 2% a year in purchasing power. You were actually losing money. 
the monetary authorities were stealing money from you, stealing wealth from you. And uh, I suspect that uh, there's some talk that we, you know, if we enter some kind of yield curve control or something like that, it's beyond the bounds of this particular conversation today, we've talked about in the past, you know, that's why we could see them do poorly in the future. Um, you just see here, I mean, your treasury protected securities, this time frame has only been 15 years, seem to have done well in a higher inflationary environment. But going back to what we said before, you know, oil futures are the best. We don't really mess around with commodity contracts here in futures, but your energy stocks. And anyway, that's what we've seen, right? We are having a tremendous year in the actionable intelligence alert portfolio, personal portfolio. We're trouncing the S&P 500. I'm not bragging. I'm not trying to uh, get too cocky, but it's a fact. It's what's happening. It's what we thought would happen. And we think it's going to continue. Uh, we've got some more in this move. I thought that oil could possibly get to $70 a barrel by the end of 2021. We've already hit that on Brent. Um, things are opening up where we've seen areas where things have opened up. I mean, the anecdotal evidence is clear that people want to get out. They're going to spend money. There's pent up demand. Supply chains are constricted because of COVID and because of, you know, the lockdowns that drove businesses out and constraints that were put on various businesses. So it will take time for the supply chains to get ramped back up. And then you have all this central bank liquidity around the world where central banks have been accommodative and just printed currency units. I mean, that's the definition of inflation. I mean, you can print an unlimited amount of currency units uh, and increase the amounts by a keystroke, but you can't increase mining capacity. You can't increase manufacturing capacity. You can't increase the amount of wheat that quickly. So that's why, you know, we think that we are in, whether we're, this is just a credit impulse and inflationary impulse, and it's going to wane over time. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. But right now we're in a sweet spot for a lot of these uh, securities and energy is making a tremendous comeback. And uh, it's not over yet. Uh, we've made a tremendous amount of money. We've had many, many doubles and triples. And uh, things are looking very good. You know, even in what we've talked about in the public discussions on this forum, uh, of course, I'm not going to talk about portfolio companies here, but that's reserved for paying customers. But we have talked about, you know, Antero Resources. We have talked about Schlumberger, uh, which is a large cap oil services company. We have talked about Suncor. So these things are moving. These things are doing well. And uh, we talked about uh, just buying the XLE index or the uh, Vanguard energy uh, ETF. And those have done tremendously well. We'll show a chart uh, later on in the, this video demonstrating that. So I think that's going to continue. Will there be pullbacks along the way? Yes. Are a lot of these commodities ahead of themselves? Yes. Uh, but I think we're in a bull market. I don't know if this is going to be the decade-long super cycle. I'm still not sure yet. But, uh, you know, it's like a surfer. You ride the waves, right? The surf's up. Let's go surfing. So, you, you know, having said that, you have to remember something. These are burning matches. These are cyclical businesses. They perform well for short durations of time. They're burning matches. They're very hot for a while, and then they burn out. And we've went through the whole commodity cycle of why that is, why low prices cure low prices, and why high prices cure high prices. So you, these are not buy and hold securities. These are not widow and orphans type investments. These do well during a rising uh, price environment for the underlying commodity, 
and then that uh, will draw in a ton of investment and that will crush the price of the commodity eventually and therefore the price of the stocks will go down. So don't buy these and hold them. Uh, we are in a sweet spot right now and we're making hay while the uh, sun shines. We expect that to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, good article, which I'll put a link to. I mean, people just are not getting it right around uranium. Um, I know this community gets it. There's a small community of people that get it. You have to be careful, you know, uranium Twitter sphere. Uh, it's all people that are, all know the story, but it's starting to grow. I've noticed like even on the Reddit, uh, uranium investors um, board, it continues to grow. People keep getting attracted. So that's positive. Um, I'm liking what I'm seeing. Momentum, momentum's building. And the news continues to get more bullish week after week. You know, I think that some people were complaining for a while. They said, John, you haven't been talking about uranium for like six months or a year. Yeah, because there was nothing to say about it. But there's just been so much news recently that's been so bullish for the thesis. I have to get it on to the uh, weekly report. So here's another example. Global nuclear power share of power production to rise to 15% share from current 10%. The capacity of nuclear power worldwide of around 400,000 megawatts, that's meeting 10% of global electricity generation, is forecast to exceed 500,000 megawatts by 2030, according to data compiled by Andalola Agency on Wednesday. This is a Turkish uh, research firm. Um, then it, you can read the body of the um, article, but it, the, they're drawing their conclusions from a lot of IEA data and what's going on by countries reporting what they're planning on doing. The IEA forecasts that the share of nuclear power, seen as one of the key sources in the transition to a low carbon energy system, will reach 15% by 2030 from today's share of 10%. So you're going to raise the amount of nuclear power in the world by 50% in the next nine years. Nine years is not long in the, in the nuclear power industry. These are long life assets. They're now building plants that are, have lifespans of 80 to 100 years. We're extending the life of reactors. They're over-engineered. They're very robust. And um, this is tremendous. Uh, goes on to say the construction of new nuclear power plants with a capacity of around 53,000 megawatts continues worldwide, while the total capacity of planned plants is set to reach around 69,000 megawatts. What you will not see in the article is any discussion of any new uranium mines coming online. And as a matter of fact, one of the bigger mines this, uh, in the world just basically shut it, you know, finishes off its 30-year career this month, I believe. So you're, not see you're seeing continued, we've said this before in previous alerts uh, or weekly market updates, and in the newsletter, this is one of the fundamental reasons why I'm so bullish. There, the amount of energy consumption is going to continue to grow around the world as the population grows, as it urbanizes, as it industrializes. And people that are sane and know what they're doing uh, in their energy policy realize that they need to have a baseload component. And that baseload component, if they don't want to choke on their own pollution, particulate matter can't be necessarily be coal. And it certainly can't be renewable. So it has to be nuclear. And that's what's happening but there's no new mines being built. And every day that goes by, we're drawing down the inventory. We are dragging out the time between starting new mines. These things don't just get turned on with a flip of a switch or a couple coders go into a dark room with some a case of monster and you know code up a new mine. These things take years to get going. So 
I remain bullish on uranium. This thing's going to take me to being, you know, independently wealthy. Uh, it can create generational wealth. You have to be patient. The move has started. Don't get, uh, you know, there's going to be same thing. It's in a bull market. What do you do in a bull market? You buy on pullbacks. So that's my advice. Uh, I've told people, uh, I got interviewed by a guy this week and, you know, I, for most people that are listening to this, it doesn't really make any sense for you to go in there and try to, you know, figure out which junior miner that will never open a mine or produce any uranium is the right play. A lot of those are, are going to be very speculative and you could possibly make tons of money. Are you going to pick the right one? Do you have enough ability to understand who has a competent uranium team and who doesn't? And who's just a lifestyle CEO or somebody that's just there, tells a good story, and then keeps issuing shares to fund their lavish salary and lifestyle? Do you have that ability? Do you have that time? You know, I've said that I said this on the interview. There's only one investable currently right now today, one investable uranium mining company. That's Kaz Adamprom. Uh, Cameco, you know, you could make the case for, but, you know, they're kind of uh, in, a, in a little bit of a bind right now. But, you know, Kaz Adamprom, cash flow, pays dividends, you know, it has low cost production. So what I recommend for most people is don't try to get cute with this. If you want to play around, your core position should just be buy one of the uranium ETFs like North Shore or the um, HURA. Forget about the URA. The URA is only 70% miners. In the depths of the uranium bear market, uh, in order to keep their assets under management up, the people that ran the fund, the ETF, decided to start culling uranium miners and sticking in gold miners and copper miners and companies like Hitachi and other big companies that ha may have a nuclear power division, but uh, was a small component of their overall sales. So they tried to get cute. Now they've been reversing that because they're losing market share to these other ETFs. But I think going the ETF route is the best bet for most people. For a generalist investor that doesn't have a lot of time, that wants to get exposure, that's probably your best bet. Uh, or take a subscription to like Justin Hune's Uranium Insider. I mean, that's all he does all day, every day is think about research, talk to, talk about uranium mining companies. So that would be my recommendation if you want to play around with juniors and he's done very well, you know, in the AIA, I'm a generalist investor. I'm all over the place. I don't even necessarily have the time I've done well with my picks, but the ones that I picked were very speculative. And, uh, I do have a core position in the, uh, uh in, in one of the ETFs. So it, it, it just makes sense to do that. If you don't have the time or weather to sit there and research all this, it's a lot of work. So I like this. This is another more bullish information. So what is this? This is the utility fuel coverage for the nuclear reactors by year, right? So this is the percentage of their fuel coverage for the reactors. This is the years. This is the percentage, okay? This is from the U.S. Energy Information Administration and from the European Atomic Administration. And typically, you know, you don't, want a reactor to run out of fuel that is you know not good you've got several billion dollars invested in building this thing it runs at a very high availability you need to 
make sure that you have adequate fuel for the reactor. And it's not like just calling up the local diesel supplier and they bring a tanker over. This is long lead time, right? From the mine mouth to processing into pelletized fuel rods is anywhere from is close to two years. So you need to be thinking about this, your fueling cycle, the refueling cycle of the reactor, how that works. Most people don't even understand how that works. Um, you should educate yourself on that because what's happening here is I think that, you know, the fuel buyers and the utilities are no different than most people. They get recency bias, you know, the price of fuel has been more than adequate or the availability of fuel recently because of the overabundance has been not a problem for us. The price has been low. There's really no need to go out and, you know, start negotiating with Cameco for 45 or $50 uranium when we can get what we need now. What you see here though is you see, well, after this year, especially in the United States, the coverage for the utilities begins to drop off massively, okay? And the music starts stopping. Remember that game you played when you were in school, musical chairs? And, you know, if you just, if you wait to hear and you decide you're going to wait two years out, I mean, now you're 2025, 20, that's only four years from now. You know, 2028 is only seven years from now, and you're almost down to 92% decrease in covered uh, utility coverage. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of buying that's going to be coming into this market. And don't forget the Chinese. They are on a massive, massive build out. Okay. And they don't have a lot of domestic, if any, I believe, domestic supply of uranium. So they're going to be out there securing the supply well in advance for many years for their reactors. They're not stupid. They don't play just in time inventory like, like a lot of people. It's a top down, you know. Five-year plans are done. We talked about that last week with the current five-year plan is increase in reactor builds. They're going to make sure they have all that fuel well in advance, prepared, ready to go, so it's not a problem for them. So this is just another bullish brick in the wall, if you will. All right, we're moving on. So this was on Zero Hedge this week. I think this is going to become more of an issue as we go forward. I don't want to get too sidetracked into my view on climate change, which I believe is going to get colder over time. Sunspot cycle is decreasing. I'm not going to get into all that. When I start going down that road, people start getting upset with me. Um, but that's what I, that's my view. That doesn't mean we're going to go into a new ice age and we're going to have glaciation over North America. That's not what I think. What you have is subtle changes. Like if you would read the documentation of what happened in the Middle Ages when they had the uh, cold periods in Europe, that's documented. And what happened? Well, you had shortened growing you had shortening of the growing season on the front end and the back end of their growing seasons. They shaved off two weeks, you planted late by two weeks and you had and and you had early freezes and it compressed the growing cycle. So what that does is leads to lower yields. You know, what happened in China last year with all the flooding, okay? They've been importing tremendous amounts of grain, putting pressure on the grain market. And, you know, they have to rebuild their hog population after they had the swine flu and they had to eradicate a majority of their hog population. So these are the kind of things you'll see if you want to talk about climate change, not that the, the earth's going to turn into mercury. You're going to see these subtle changes. You're going to see these crop disasters here and there. And, you know, we've been spoiled over 
almost like the last eight years, 10 years with very good crop yields, very good carryovers in our grain stocks. And it, we're, I believe that's going to change going forward. Uh, we're going to have these shocks that we're not prepared for, and that's going to lead to food price inflation. Now, if you recall during the Arab Spring, a lot of that was kicked off just because of rising food prices in these North African countries, like in Egypt and Tunisia, if you go back and study what really kicked those off. And so, you know, I hope it doesn't get as bad as some people that I do listen to think it might, uh, because there's a confluence of other things just besides sunspots coming together that I think are going to be deleterious to growing conditions. But this is something to watch. Uh, I've just add, I'm going to be adding probably this month. Um, I have it in my personal portfolio, but I'm going to start adding some fertilizer stocks to the portfolio. They're still fairly uh, cheap, uh, but they will do tremendously well. I don't have the chart here, but I did see a chart this week of the correlation between uh, grain prices and fertilizer stocks. It's almost step for step. So if you want exposure to rising grain prices and food prices, you know, your best bet is just to buy a basket of fertilizer stocks. And I'll be adding uh, that to the portfolio uh, probably this month or in the April issue. So uh, something to watch. Okay, so another chart here. People aren't paying attention. There's two things I want to note here, okay? Two things that I want to note. Look at basically the magenta, I guess, or purple, whatever you want to call it. That's the existing coal-fired stations. The blue is the planned coal-fired stations that they're planning on building, and then the total amount of coal-fired power plants. These are not megawatts. These are actual plants. So look at India. Look at China. Look at even Japan, who has no resources there. They have to, they, you know, they're on a rocky island. They're building more coal. South Korea, the Philippines, massively increasing. South Africa, Turkey, and the EU-28. So they're, even in the EU, you're seeing increases in the building of coal plants, even in Germany, that's going through the energy transition, where they say they have 40% of their power being supplied by, or electricity being supplied by, by renewables, you're, you're even seeing coal plants being built there. What do you not see on here? The United States, okay? Um, and the EU is actually very small. It's increasing slightly, but a lot of those are in like Poland and in the Eastern European countries. So, what I'm trying to tell you is they have this, you know, the title of the slide is coal keeps the lights on, you know, coal's still 30 and 30% and change 32, 33% of electrical generation capacity around the world. It's not going anywhere. Why am I talking about this? Well, look at the countries. These are all most for the most part are emerging markets. They have growing industrialization and urbanization. They need power. Coal is used um, because it is cheap, easy to transport and store and fairly ubiquitous in its you know, placement around the Earth's crust. So, of course, they're going to use it. Now, it does have deleterious effects, right? Particulate matter, not CO2. It's a particulate matter that really hurts people, okay? I'm not going to get into the CO2 thing again, but particulate matter, but there are controls you can put in place to control that, okay? It'd still be better to go nuclear, more nuclear, but this is what's going to happen. So why am I talking about this? What, how is this actionable? 
I'm going to be getting more into coal investments. I already have some met coal investments. I'm going to be adding thermal coal. Why? Because it's not going to go away. And what's happening is, is that it's being divested. You can't borrow money to build a new mine. You cannot uh, investment trusts, pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, they are divesting. There's capital is going to become scarce for new coal mines. <clears throat> so if you have a resource, if you have mines already built, you are going to be in a situation where uh, it'll be very difficult for competitors to come into your market. And you are going to not necessarily have monopoly, but you are going to have pricing power. It's not going to go away um, in any near-term future uh, just because of the needs of the uh, energy for these growing countries. It's just going to be part of the mix. And so with the capital starvation, that could possibly, in my mind, lead to a situation. It's been compared. I've had some smart people compare it that I've listened to compare it to the tobacco industry in the 90s. It was a vilified industry. Um, it was in decline, can't advertise. They, they had a big settlement, multi-billion, tens of billion dollars settlement with the federal government. And it was still, over the long term, one of the best performing industry sectors in the, in the stock market. Okay. And I think coal has a similar, is going to have a similar um, performance. And you simply cannot get financing in the US at least, and probably in Europe to build a new coal mine. Um, no, I mean, people have come out explicitly said they're not going to do the finance these things. So uh, I think Russia and China will, they'll be there. Um, that will leave out, there's all, their capital will always go to high returns, but um, I think there's going to be opportunity uh, in this sector over the next uh, 10 years. And if you look at some of the companies now, they pay very high dividends. Uh, they're very, uh, you know, you're talking seven, eight, 10% dividends. So they make money, they're not going away, and they're vilified. Kind of a thing that we like here at the Actionable Intelligence Alert. So last slide, I wanted to talk about this. I find this amusing, but it's also kind of indicative of what we're seeing in the portfolio. So what are we looking at here? The dark blue line. First of all, this goes back to late October of last year, early November in this area here. So what's TAN? TAN is the solar energy ETF, okay? What is FAN? FAN is the wind power ETF. It's the purple line, okay? Here it is. Here's the dark blue line is the solar. And VDE is the Vanguard energy. It's mostly oil and gas. And you will note that here we are in March and you have the oil and gas basically ETF is up about 77%. Yes, FAN and TAN are both up, but barely. They, they peaked out in uh, late January, early February, and they've been in decline. And the oil, the oil and gas uh, ETF is done tremendously. So what I, whether you think that this is a longer term phenomenon that's gonna continue, I do. Uh, what you're seeing is, is that um, money flows to where the highest returns are. So really, we haven't seen a lot of uh, generalist money really come back into oil and gas yet. It will, it's starting to, uh, but I just find this amusing. You're seeing this uh, big divergence now 
when this is supposed to be the zeitgeist, right? Wind and solar and, you know, oil and gas is supposed to be on the outs and look at the performance. And that's what we're about making money here. We don't make judgments. Heads I win, tails I win more. Um, this is going to continue to be the area where all the investment's going to go, where government's going to push resources, where it's going to try to legislate uh, an advantage for, and uh, we'll take advantage of that. Cobalt, nickel, copper, the things that will be needed to do this, we will take advantage of. But oil and gas isn't going anywhere. You're going to need tremendous amounts, millions of tons, billions of barrels of oil to facilitate the build out of the wind and solar transition. So that's it. And we're here to make money. And this is how you make money. You buy when things are out of favor and you see over time you get vindicated. Uh, so we'll see, maybe this turns around. We'll keep an eye on this. Uh, but I just found this kind of amusing and instructive of what's possible and why one needs to purge bias. And you can't just be a zealot. I mean, the people that, you know, bought and said, oh yeah, we're trouncing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the top, you know, you have basically a triple top in tan here. And uh, it's now it's done tremendously well over the last several years, it's up hundreds of percent. So this is just a short-term chart, but I, I just think it's kind of amusing uh, and kind of shows you that every dog has its day and for every season, there's a time for every season, right? So um, don't get too caught up in biases or what your personal political beliefs or views are and translate that into the markets. Uh, this is an example of what can happen if you do. So that's it for this week, guys. Uh, appreciate uh, the listens. Appreciate the new subscribers. The channel continues to grow, as I've said before, and uh, so does the newsletter. So we appreciate all the new subscribers things are really going well. I never thought uh, it would get to this point, but it's really, really doing well. Um, the subscriber growth has just been tremendous. We are attracting a lot of new subscribers. They're getting a lot of good feedback from people that they never looked at things the way that we're looking at things now before we've opened their eyes on some things. And to me, that's success. So I uh, feel pretty good about that. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.